LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is a world without free will a better world? Do humans have free will? When you order a scoop of chunky monkey ice cream and decide whimsically at the last minute to change to chubby hubby instead, is that you, the unique individual floating between your ears, making that decision? Or is it just a quirk in the patterns of the swirling atoms that comprise each of us, just the causal chain of a biological process playing itself out? If this question doesn't interest you, Maybe it reminds you of the bloviations of stoned philosophy majors in college. Here's another question that might interest you. Would the world be better if everyone believed we did not have free will, or at least believed that we had less of it? This is the argument made by Robert Sapolsky, the MacArthur Genius Grant winning Stanford neuroscientist, in his new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Robert makes the case that the closer we look, the more each of our behaviors can be explained by biology and evolution and culture. One by one, behaviors we used to attribute to individuals, like schizophrenia or autism or dyslexia or ADHD, we now understand to be biological. And because of this change of perception, we are kind to people with these conditions. We don't blame them, and we make efforts to help them flourish. Schizophrenia, autism, these are conditions with names, but each of us has a unique collection of strengths and weaknesses, a unique neurobiology that in the end explains our good behavior and our bad behavior every bit as completely. The more we learn about the human brain, the more we can explain it all. And the more we can explain it, the less logical it is to blame people for their bad behavior and congratulate people for their good behavior, and the more logical it is to simply help each other. The more we accept that we are biological machines, Sapolsky argues, the more clear it becomes that we have an ethical obligation to design a society that empathizes with everyone, yes, even serial killers, while taking pains to make the world safe for all of us. I know this is a heady topic, one that some people find depressing or discouraging or just plain weird. But worry not, there is good news in here, I think, and a lot to chew on. Robert and I discuss how conditions in the womb predict anxiety disorder, depression, and obesity many years later. The behavioral impact of growing up in collectivist versus individualistic cultures. The powerful correlation between adverse childhood experiences and antisocial violence, mood disorders, and substance abuse later in life. The argument for treating criminals like cars with faulty brakes. They should be taken off the road, not punished for the sake of retribution. How we evolved to enjoy the punishment of cheaters, but have nonetheless made incremental cultural reforms in the direction of more humane treatment of those who break the rules and Robert's personal struggles with depression and the possible utility of depression in exploring challenging subject matter. 
And finally, we discuss the privilege of human consciousness and the role of science in reinventing and reinvigorating, again and again, our sense of wonder. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Robert Sapolsky, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Robert, you are a professor of biology and neuroscience at Stanford. You've written quite a few books, including Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, The Trouble with Testosterone, Behave, and now Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. You won a MacArthur Genius Grant and countless other fellowships and awards. And as much as I would like to give you credit for those accomplishments, I think you would say that you don't deserve any credit at all because you're simply a product of your genes and environment. So I guess I'm going to skip that part. You really had nothing to do with it. Well, in my my more intellectually honest moments, absolutely, because I don't think any of us have earned anything. We're just end products of stuff we had no control over. And have you found that one outcome of your belief that we have no free will is a, is a sense of of greater humility and 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 maybe by extension empathy? Well, I think if everybody. Uh, sort of followed me into what's the lunatic fringe of people who are dubious about free will, saying there's none whatsoever. The only logical outcome, the only intellectually honest and ethically okay thing to conclude is none of us have earned anything. None of us are entitled to anything. Blame, punishment, praise, reward make no sense at all. And all you can do is look at what any other person has done and realize they are simply the end product of everything that came before for them, and they had nothing to do with it. Well, a little background. I, too, am a member of your lunatic fringe. <laughs> um, I know that you first concluded that free will was an illusion when you were 14, so this has been, I think, some 50 years. I decided I was a sophomore in college in 1987, and I just, uh, like you, I like woke up in the middle of the night and just thought, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense at all. You know, this, this uh, like science and free will are not compatible. And this has made me objectionable company at dinner parties <laughs> for 35 years. And I've been looking for the the lessons and the learnings and and, and the, the positive discoveries uh, um, the, the utility in this belief for years. And what your book has done for me, and and, and also a conversation I had with Sam Harris uh, on this show, is to point out the ways in which this lens on the world can be useful if applied for short periods of time. And, and, and fortunately for all of us, as I think you'd agree, it's very hard to retain this point of view that there's no free will yep. for longer than, say, possibly the length of a podcast if we're lucky. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> because it would be very difficult to navigate the world if we, if we were consciously mindful of, of, uh, that free will was an illusion. Is that your experience? Absolutely. And as you said, I haven't believed in free will whatsoever for 
decades and decades and decades. And nonetheless, 99% of the time, I function as if there is free will. And I'm like a flaming hypocrite in that regard. And it's only at junctures where I think it really matters that I'm able to stop myself and say, okay, let, let's think about this conclusion again and work through it. Yeah, it is very ingrained in us. We have a strong emotional need to feel like we are the captains of our fate. You know, I, I, I think it may be useful for listeners. I, I think th there may be a small number of listeners who we convince in this conversation that there's no free will at all. But I think that we can probably convince a significant portion of listeners that we have a lot less free will than we think. Which I'm happy to settle for. What do you find to be the, the most sort of convincing examples of this case? Three come to mind because they cover the span of from a couple of seconds ago to thousands of years ago in terms of where these influences come from. A couple of seconds ago, this whole literature showing when people are hungry, they're less generous. They are less trusting. They are less able to read somebody else's facial expressions. Hunger does that to us. Yeah, those studies are amazing. They're totally amazing. And many of them, much of them are built around, you don't even know what's going on in those cases. And you could significantly change someone's behavior based on this. The the pair of studies from that end that I, I love the most, These this is a whole style of work that came out of Yale initially. Put somebody in a room and have them fill out a questionnaire about their views of politics and social issues and all of that. And if the person is sitting in a room that smells of rotten garbage, people become more socially conservative. It's fascinating. You'll say to them, well, that's interesting. You, you, you filled out a similar questionnaire two weeks ago, and there you said it was okay for people like this to do that, and now you're saying not. Well, I, I thought about it. I, I thought about how they don't do this in society or how they did this to my ancestors 300 years ago and decided it's really not okay that they do that. And it's because you've got a part of your brain that confuses disgusting smells and tastes with disgusting morality. That's going on in seconds. Going on years back, back to when you were a fetus, when you were fetus, uh, you are spending nine months sharing your environment with your mother, your nutritional environment, your hormonal one, all of that. And depending on what your mother was up to, this will shape who you are as an adult enormously. Obvious example, duh, is if your mother was drinking vast amounts of alcohol, you get born mm -hmm, with fetal sure. alcohol syndrome and everything about you is, is virtually guaranteed to go poorly thereafter. But all sorts of subtler stuff. If your mother was secreting atypically large amounts of stress hormones while she was pregnant, you, for your entire adult life, are more at risk for clinical depression or an anxiety disorder. Mm. If your mother was deprived of nutrients while she was pregnant with you, 60 years after you were born, you are almost 20 times more likely to be 
obese or have hypertension mm. because yeah. your brain was doing all sorts of wiring up at the time based on, wow, it's a scary place out there. It's a stressful place. It's a nutritively wonderful place. There's no food out there. And your body and brain are constructed accordingly. So that stuff is going on back when you were a fetus. But in some ways, even more amazingly, what kind of culture did your ancestors come up with? Because that will have influenced how their kids were raised and how their kids' kids were raised and all the way down to how you were raised. And culture is an incredibly powerful shaping thing within minutes of birth. Great sort of example. One of the standard cross-cultural sort of psychology comparisons that are made are people who come from what are termed collectivist cultures. Yeah. And yeah. like the standard case for that is rice-growing populations in Southeast Asia, where everybody plants each other's crop and everybody harvests each other's crop and 14 villages are working cooperatively to keep the irrigation system going from the mountains 20 miles away. So yeah. you got them. And then you have individualist cultures like the U.S., who are the poster childs of individualism. You show somebody a picture, and people from collectivist cultures tend to look at different parts of the picture than people from individualist ones. In milliseconds, completely outside of your control, stick yeah. somebody in a brain scanner and show them a picture of themselves and a certain part of the brain activates, and show somebody from a collectivist culture a picture of their mother and the same part right, of the brain right. activates and show it to somebody westernized and that brain region doesn't activate. Its circuitry differentiates between you and your family much, much more sharply than somebody in a collectivist call. So stuff a second ago, stuff when you were a fetus, stuff that your ancestors were up to shaping all of this, and you put all the intervening steps together and, you know, all we are is the biology and environment that we couldn't control that made us us. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, what really drove home for me was the, um, was the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experiences data. And yep. the, the, way, the way that correlates with outcomes was just kind of astonishing. Do you want to share that? Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. Okay, so people figured out at some point along the way that if you have a rotten childhood, that increases the likelihood that you're going to have a pretty miserable adulthood, and have even been trying to figure out how the two were connected ever since, and people are learning the molecular biology of that and what's going on in the brain. All of that's great. So then you look at, well, what are the different ways you can have a great childhood or a profoundly unlucky one, and it's been formalized into your ACE score adverse childhood experience score, and you could get from zero to 10 on the scale, and you get one point each for, were you physically abused? Were you sexually abused? Were you psychologically abused? Were you witnessed to? Did you have a family member who was incarcerated? Was there a person in the family with substance abuse problem? And you get a little link one more on the checklist for each one of those. And what you see is it's not just looking at the tiny percentage you have lucked out and score zero on it versus the like people raised in hell who get a 10, but for every step 
of an ACE score going up, there's about a 35% increased likelihood if this person is male that they're going to have a history of antisocial violence by the time they're an adult. If they're female, that they will have gotten pregnant as a teen. If they're either sex, that they will have a mood disorder, a substance abuse problem, will have a history of sexually transmitted diseases, all of that. And each step higher in this pathway, and that's your more likely outcome. You could make up a checklist exactly the same to give somebody their ridiculously lucky childhood experience checklist mm, and, yeah, and yeah. were mm -hmm. they middle class and secure? Did their parents play with them? Did they have board games at home? Did they learn an instrument? Were they able to go to the park in the neighborhood and not feel afraid? And add that up, and you know that you're going to have something equivalent of an umpteen percent increase in likelihood that they're going to wind up in my classroom at Stanford instead of the county jail a few miles away. Do you think it's, it's the case that the more we study human behavior, the more ground is ceded to these biological influences and cultural influences over time. Um, it seems like there, there are things like dyslexia or schizophrenia, which you bring up in the book, that that uh, a long time ago we saw as the failure of the individual. We now see these as biological conditions. And, and, and this would seem to be a, a kind of progress because we treat dyslexics and schizophrenics with more kindness and understanding and, and assistance because of this progress. That's exactly the case. Um, I mean, all we've been doing for centuries with what like Western science has been giving us is time after time we say, oh, I had no idea biology had something to do with that. Oh, yeah. I had no idea that isn't a choice. When I was a kid, you know, if the kid sitting next to me in third grade wasn't learning how to read, there'd be like attributions that everybody would have. Like the kid is lazy and not motivated and doesn't have any self-discipline and they can't focus. And, the, and then like we figured out that like you can have screwed up architecture of how like one layer of your cortex and one part of your brain is wired up. And as a result, you have a trouble telling the difference between a small case B and a small case D and you reverse them and you mm -hmm, got dyslexia. Mm -hmm. yeah. And whoa, not only, as you said, does that teach us like how to get people with learning differences to learn more easily. It's like instructive, yay, useful stuff coming out of science. But the main thing is you don't get raised with everyone thinking you're lazy and unmotivated and self-indulgent and all of that. And all you need to do is look at like this whole world of like these heartbreaking testimonials mm. of somebody yeah. saying, yeah, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that they finally said, oh, that's the problem. Dyslexia. You've had dyslexia all along. You're not lazy. You're not that. That's why. And like an entire lifetime's worth of the self-image being built on stuff you had no control over. You have a quote from a woman named Marianne who has autism spectrum disorder, who says, uh, I called myself evil, cold, weird. I wished only that I hadn't lost so much of my life hating myself. And then, and then presumably her diagnosis 
enabled her to no longer hate herself, right? To understand. And, and, and this arguably applies to not just to people with conditions that we recognize today that have names, but it applies to every condition of every human, right? Exactly. And like, we don't even have names yet for the ways in which people's lives are ruined by random biology that has gone wrong. And that's exactly the case. And those cases are like incredibly like powerful and moving and crap. If only one had, someone had told me, eh, it might have something to do with fetal hypoxia and a little bit of this in the bloodstream during second trimester. And thus, you have trouble making eye contact with people and learning subtle social rules. And people are going to kind of ostracize you in a lot of circumstances. And it's not your fault. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you say that when you add up all these influences on our behavior, there's no room left for free will. That if you go one by one, and, and, and you say, like, if, if we look at all of these different scientific disciplines, if you put, I'm quoting you here, put all the scientific results together from all the relevant scientific disciplines, and there's no room for free will. That process of adding them all up is one that most people don't do because they're focused on their individual silos. But but your your view is add it all up, and you 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 I think you use the word shoehorn. You cannot shoehorn free will into this equation. Exactly. And once you have enough of these disciplines, it's not just, oh, if we all want to understand who we are, you got to understand genetics and sociology and anthropology and, and fetal circulation science and all. You need to have them all. The critical thing, the thing that makes it this seamless arc where there's no cracks to shoehorn free will in is the fact that ultimately they all become one discipline. They all become the same thing. If you're talking about genes, by definition, you're talking about their evolution over the course of millions of years. Yeah, and also, yeah. by definition, you're talking about the epigenetic programming that went on with your genes when you were fetus. And by definition, you're talking about what proteins your genes were making in this part of your brain this afternoon after lunch. And all those pieces meld together into a single arc of this is how you became who you are, and you couldn't have been otherwise. This argument strikes me as one I've, 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 I've tested some of these arguments on different friends. And this strikes me as one that I think the pushback, the natural pushback here is, well, wait a second. Without the ability to precisely assess the size of each influence on our behavior, we can't conclude that they add up to exactly 100%, right? I mean, in other words, like one would have to have a very precise instrument to measure each influence in order for this to be a fully successful argument for zero free will. Yeah. And as we know, what you know, you do if you're a scientist is you learn more and more about less and less. And each time you think you've explained something, you've discovered 17 more questions that that opened up. So like, there's always going to be more science to be done. And yeah. that's the wall that people like you and me get pushed against when they say, oh yeah, prove that there's no free will. 
you can't prove the absence of something. At this point, we know enough about all these steps. We don't know everything. We're never going to have pure predictability, blah, blah, et cetera. But at this yeah. point, we know enough that the onus, the burden of proof should be switched to the other side. If despite everything we know now about everything from evolution to one second ago, you're still saying there's free will. Show me how it works. Show me a mechanism by which somebody can produce a behavior where their brain function completely independent of everything that came before. And you can't. The way that I arrived at the conclusion that free will was an illusion, when I was 19, it took me an extra five years. You figured it out at 14, Robert. <laughs> it took me until I was 19. But my thought experiment was, okay, wait, we had 14 billion years of the universe, swir of rocks swirling in space, of these early chemical reactions, this unfurling of all the complexity of the universe. Then we had these early replicators, early signs of life emerging some 3 billion years ago. In this process, in this beautiful causal chain of chemical reactions, or you could describe it as a flow of transformation of energy over billions of years, eventually producing nervous systems, synapses, you know, cause, effect, cause, effect, when and how did the first emergence of individual agency occur? Um, I mean, that that is something that would need to be explained. And, and, and to me, that always seemed highly improbable. People can point to quantum mechanics and say, well, there's all this sort of subatomic indeterminacy to which I would say, but how does all this subatomic randomness self-organize into the volition yep. of an individual organism? That's a wildly improbable occurrence, right? And, and so if you can't explain that, you, you can't get to, to free will. That's an incredibly like cool novel angle you're taking there. Who was the first Australopithecus mother who had no free will, who gave birth to a child who had free will? <laughs> like who who is the first Cro-Magnon who gave birth to a child with a soul? That yeah. Where did that happen? When did that transition happen? There is no transition. When did people first really, really wanting to believe? that they were the captains of their fates? That's a completely different question. And why is it so psychologically comforting? But yeah, framing that like evolutionarily, that, that shows how nonsensical it is as well. Part of why this is such a, uh, there's so few people who I think land in this place is that the experience of free will that we all have is so overwhelmingly convincing. Yeah. You sit there, you decide which flavor of ice cream. You know you have the intent to ask for that ice cream. You know the outcome of that is likely to be, that's the ice cream that you get. And you know you have alternatives. You could pick a different ice cream. You have options. You are not being coerced. And for most people, that moment of choice is so palpable, is so in the moment that it's mistaken for free will. Yeah, we make choices and we make choices with conscious intent. And that has nothing to do with whether or not there's free will because it ignores the only relevant question at that point. How do you turn out to be the sort of person who would have that intent? 
how did circumstance bring you to that moment? Because you can't intend something other than what you intend. You can't successfully wish for something different than what you're wishing for. You can't will yourself to have more willpower. So the fact that it is a conscious in the moment choice that you make tells us absolutely nothing about free will, because the only thing is like, how do you wind up that way? Now, having said everything that I've that I've I've said in in these last few pieces of the conversation, I would still say that I'm only about ninety five percent convinced that that this is true, <laughs> and and the reason <laughs> the reason I would say that is just because there's so much we don't understand. And I, I, I loved your, I think you quote in the book, Richard Feynman saying, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, exactly. so like the, beha the behavior of subatomic particles is really something we're just beginning, beginning to, to understand, but we fundamentally don't understand. Consciousness is still something we can't begin to explain. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know that I see a hard problem of consciousness, but I certainly see like a, a viscous problem of consciousness. Like it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, I mean, no, no one can ex explain why the experience of being conscious feels as it does. So wouldn't you agree that because there's so much that we do not yet know, we can't make this assertion with 100% certainty? Yeah, <laughs> you got me there. I personally believe there's none whatsoever, but you know what? What scientists do is say this preliminarily is how we think the universe works, and we're going to think this way until somebody falsifies this, and then we revise our thinking about things and hooray and objective process and all of that. Yeah, you can't be a hundred percent certain. Nonetheless, given what we know at this point. Really, I think the burden of proof is much more on the people who are saying, yeah, brains could do this, hormones could do that, genes could do this, but here are processes that happen that are independent of all of that, where none of that stuff matters. Do you consider a world without free will to be less appealing or more appealing than a world with free will? Well, this is where people usually freak out, like, oh my God, what if people actually accepted that there's no free will or there's yeah. like way less? How are we supposed to function? What's the world supposed to look like? So where does that take us? Some of it is, where does that not take us? The immediate one of, oh my God, you can't have people believe that. They'll just run amok. That doesn't yeah. hold up to the science. Oh, people will just think that nothing can change if it's all determined. No, that is completely like falsely yoking the two. People will decide we're just going to have murderers running around in the streets because it's not their fault. No, that's not how you run society, even when you jettison the notion of free will. But on the deepest level, I think it would make for a much, much better world because every time historically we've figured out oh, this is not their fault, the world has become a more humane place. Every time we have subtracted responsibility out of something we see in the world around us and in human behavior, it becomes a kinder, better world to be in. And it is a very, very good thing that we no longer believe that the weather is controlled by witches. 
And it's great that we don't burn people at the stake for that anymore. That was a major advance in in like human humaneness and all of that. It's a much better world that we figured out that people with epileptic seizures are not in bed with Satan, that we figured out there's a biochemistry, which means no matter how self-disciplined you are, if you have a certain bunch of gene variants, you are going to be obese. And it's not because you secretly hate yourself. With every one of these steps, it becomes a better place. And with every one of those steps, we can also show we can construct the world so that the roof doesn't cave in. So let's say that hypothetically, I, I was very pleased, by the way, Robert, to hear you say that that you're not 100% certain. <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I personally, for many years, decades, have taken my several percentage points of uncertainty like little beautiful hot embers of coals and blown on them. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's important to me because it's, it's I, I, like, I guess I would say that I would see the world as more beautiful if everyone could reduce their confidence in their own free will by 90%, uh, <laughs> that I think that's a better yep. outcome. But I don't want people ha to have to give up the embers of, of the humanity of, I mean, uh, you know, on the one hand, I don't mind people being robbed of their overconfidence in their own accomplishments. That's fine. Everybody should be more humble. I think the beauty of the world exists with or without free will, but kindness of one human to another is beautiful because it's a choice. Right. And if you remove the choice entirely, we lose this kind of precious piece of, of our humanness, I think. And the answer is, you know, the crude way of answering it is tough luck. That's how it works. But yeah. the much better way of answering that is those two pieces are not incompatible. I mean, Gazelle. I've I've watched gazelle leap a lot of times in my years in East Africa, and it's totally amazing. And for a few seconds, I think the planet is a just beautiful place because I just watched a gazelle do that. That doesn't last, but at least for a moment. And then you can go like pull some like uber nerd dork out of some lab who does biomechanics and they could explain to you the angle of like a gazelle pelvis and it's it's femur and how that allows this to end it's both you can reduce a gazelle down to its biomechanics yeah. and at the same time it is still just as amazing and i i desperately love my wife and at the same time i know it probably that it wound up this way has something to do with my like vasopressin receptors in this part of my brain and this experience I had when I was a kid and these olfactory receptors I have to be sensitive to this or that type of pheromone. And it doesn't take anything away from it. And if along the way, like while we function at this dual level, there can be beauty and amazing stuff. And there could be mechanism mm -hmm. under the surface explaining how that works. That's great that you could maintain both in your head, especially if the process of doing that makes the world more humane to people who've had crappy luck. I was, I was just picturing you, Robert, uh, on your knee proposing to your wife, saying that your, your, your pheromones trigger my olfactory <laughs> receptory system in exactly the right way. <laughs> this is going to work out beautifully. That was it. We're, we're that kind of couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's talk more specifically about how a world without free will, what the implications would be for our criminal justice system. Because this is, we, we've spoken about empathy and uh, humility and treating different people's specific conditions with, with greater sensitivity and care. Uh, but the criminal justice system is clearly today based on, very significantly based on retribution. Yeah. Uh, and particularly in the U.S., and it doesn't work very well. How should we change it? Well, the system makes no sense. The system makes as little sense as thinking that people control the weather as a result of witchcraft. It simply does not make any sense because it is deciding people chose to become the sort of people that circumstance made them. It is completely unacceptable to have a world in which punishment is a virtue in and of itself, to have a world in which anyone deserves to be deprived of anything or treated in any aversive way. It is simply indefensible. Okay. So at this point, people like go berserk into the, oh my God, are you saying <laughs> yeah. Yeah. murderers running around on the streets and somebody does the most awful thing imaginable, the most painful act, and you're supposed to forgive them? No. You don't forgive a plant for having a phototropism so it grows towards the sun. You don't forgive or not forgive. It's, it's an irrelevant concept. But do we thus have to have murderers running around the streets? Absolutely not. Over and over, we can figure out how to protect society from damaging things without telling those damaging things that they have bad souls. Like if you have a car whose brakes no. don't work and you don't know how to fix them, you don't let it out on the street. It's going to hurt somebody. You put it in a garage, but you don't go into the garage every day with a sledgehammer and hit the car over the top <laughs> because it hurts somebody and or you don't preach to it about its soul. You constrain it. And we need to do the same thing to people who have been through no actions of their own, made damaging to those around them. And if at that point you're saying, oh my God, turning people into machines is so dehumanizing, mm -hmm. it's a hell of a lot better than turning them into sinners by demonizing at them. How about the piece of the incentives of how do, how do we discourage people from engaging in the bad behavior? That would appear to be important in this case, right? Because people need to learn to modify their behavior and recognize that their consequences Sure. And you use all the tools of social psychology and all those disciplines and understand the root core causes of like damaging criminal behavior and all of that. And 
you do what you can. And maybe you can't wind up doing much. I mean, it's not clear in the slightest what you do with somebody who has the brain of a sociopath. And there's some very distinctive weirdo things about those brains, yeah. which we haven't a clue how you go in and with some widgets and fix it. That sort of, yeah, if that's the realm they're in, make sure they can't damage anybody. And what I view as sort of the most progressive people in criminology, and I can't begin to describe how much I'm like out of my area of expertise on this, they're not doing, you know, truth and reconciliation commissions. They're not doing, you know, taking responsibility for your actions, but trying to feel the pain of your victims and your victims feeling your pain, because all of those are predicated on their responsibility. You quarantine the person. You quarantine them and you use the exact same rules as what's done in public health quarantine. You constrain the person so they can't damage anybody else. You don't constrain them one inch further out of the notion that there's some sort of like virtue in doing that. You don't preach to them about it. And you have a moral obligation to put a whole lot of work and research into figuring out how do people turn out that way in the first place? What are root causes? But we have an additional complication, which is that as it turns out, humans really love to punish people when it's righteous, yep. when somebody has done something bad. This was a fascinating section of the book. There was a study of little of, of children. I guess little humans are also called children. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I think chimpanzees, right? Uh, yep. Uh, do you want, you want to speak to that? It's extraordinary. Both little children and chimps, when they're observing humans and they observe a human being a jerk to some other human, and the jerk human is pulled into another room where what you learn is they get hit over the head with this like, you know, marshmallow bat over there simulating some sort of punishment and the actor in the role is pained by this and all of that. And if you want to go into that room and watch them get punished, you've got to give up a couple of tokens, these, these arbitrary tokens the kids have been getting paid with for something. Or if you're the chimp, you got to work really hard to push this heavy door open. And <laughs> kids and chimps will pay to get to see bad guys get what's coming to them. This is clearly something that was is uh, deeply evolved, and, and and it makes perfect sense from a game theory perspective, doesn't it? That yep. we that we collectively punish cheaters. We naturally, as Homo sapiens, take pleasure in punishing cheaters. But it sounds like there's hope. Well. You know, we've got a lot of nature to overcome and yeah, we love to punish if it's self-righteous and, and not only are you supposedly making the world a better place, but you can prove your dominance and who knows what else. But what I do in the chapter is take people through the history of punishment and yeah. like the chapter has like one blood curdling historical example after example of example going from like how a crowd of medieval peasants would like burn the lepers to death because supposedly they had caused the wells to be tubercular or something to okay 
you, you crowd, you can't do that anymore. We, the government, we, the authorities are going to do that. We're going to draw and quarter somebody in the town square and feed their liver to the dogs afterward. And you're just going to have to get your sense of pleasure from watching it rather than participating. And then, you know, we're not going to torture which, which, them. By the, which, by the way, I don't want to get, uh, mess up your flow there, but drawing and quartering is just a gruesome, oh gruesome God. process. I mean, it's right. I mean, it, it, I mean, literally, we're talking about four sets of horses pulling someone in four directions until they're yep. all you have left is a torso, and then they stab the torso with hot yep thongs. It, and it's, it's, it's like this. Yeah, it's kind of horrifying. And even though the huge crowd watching didn't get to do that themselves from their cultural time and place, they mm. walk away afterward thinking that justice was done. And then it progressed from there. And here we are now with lethal injections, and that's a world away from drawing and quartering. And with each one of these steps, People have learned, yeah, maybe I can domesticate my sense of pleasure and punishment a little bit here and adjust to these newfangled times. And we're just on a trajectory of it. And then you look at what the ever utopian good guy Scandinavians are doing in their prison system, and it's not built on retribution at all. And not only is there less crime in those countries and less recidivism, but afterward, victims feel as if justice was done to the same extent that people do here if they're like electrocuted. You write in the book about about punishment, right? About the idea of actually quarantining. You could take somebody who'd done something horrible and put them on a lovely island where they can't hurt anybody and they could, you know, sip pina coladas and, and get tennis lessons from a robot, presumably. <laughs> um, but But were you to do that with Hitler... Uh, I think I think society would respond uh, negatively. Um, it, would you really advocate for pleasant quarantines for people who have done horrible things to society? Yeah, if I if I believe a word of any of this stuff, they're a machine that went off the rails in this particular way. They had nothing to do with it, and you know clearly umpteen psychohistorians for decades now have been trying to figure out what happened to Hitler, what, where did that come from? And you know, we want to understand what it was, but the premise of how did that happen is how did circumstance make him the person that he was? And a great example of, oh my God, Hitler, you're just going to put him on an island and they're going to like get pina coladas and all of that, and that's supposed to feel just if you have the right societal perception. And I spent some of the book talking about the worst massacre in the history of Norway, uh, this white supremacist, Anders Breivik, who set off a bomb in front of the parliament. And then he went to this island where these socialist teenage clubs were having their annual meeting, and he gunned 74 of them down. And, and at his trial, he was giving Nazi salutes, and his only regret was he didn't get more of them. And like, oh my God. What a nightmare. And what they did is they put him in jail. They gave him the maximal sentence in Norway, the stiffest sentence in the history of Norway, which was 21 years in prison. 
and he's in a prison where he has an apartment. He has like a three-room suite. He has computer access. He has exercise machines. He can take part in the prison's like gingerbread house building competition each Christmas, all of that. You can earn like a vacation time if you don't give the guards any trouble. And you know, we would like be enraged. How can that be? And all of that. And you look at the people in Norway and the vast majority of Norwegians were content with that as being his punishment because it's constraint. It's quarantine and their society, people are raised to think that way. Whatever is the maximum response your society is ever willing to take, they are going to take it in the circumstance of your pain. And that's an incredibly important thing to know, to validate all of that. And then some of the stuff, the average Norwegian was content with the outcome, then interviews with family members of these like wonderful kids who got killed. And some of them sort of cursed Brevik to hell for the rest of time. But a majority of them said things like, this is great. He's put away. He can't damage anybody anymore. And I never have to think about him again. Justice was done. I never have to think about this person who did that. And we're safe from him. So a criminal justice system, more like the Norwegian approach, makes sense in a, in a world without free will. Meritocracy, you point out, is unjust, right? I mean, we, 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 many of the people who are listening to this podcast are among the winners in our society, and we have a tendency to feel very good about our accomplishments and feel that we've earned our good fortune. If in fact, the case is that we have not, and those who have less have not earned their outcome, we need to reform that system. How dramatically would you do so? Would you say everyone should have the same compensation? Well, this is quickly barreling towards, I don't know, some sort of <laughs> delightful mixture of utopian, dystopian thinking. And I, I, sure, all I know is all the ways in which this can go drastically wrong and the various yeah. science fiction writers over the years who have thought about it. Um, and thus I could take the easy way out and just emphasize how much the current system is not okay. It yeah, is not yeah. okay that some people, for things they had nothing to do with, are celebrated by society for being better humans than everyone else. It is not okay that some people get to go to the front of the line when there's a new vaccine for reasons they had nothing to do with. It's not okay that people have salaries that guarantee their kids will never be hungry when you know, what percentage of the planet doesn't have clean water? This is challenging, though, and this brings up a different version of the same panic. Oh, my God, you're going to get rid of the criminal justice system. What, you're just going to have murderers running around? No, we can have a society in which dangerous people are no longer damaging. Oh, my God, you're going to get rid of meritocracy? Somebody gets a brain tumor and you pick a random person off the street to do their brain surgery the next day? No, in the exact same way, we can guarantee that society is protected from people who are not competent to doing the difficult things. And, you know, perhaps really getting into utopian ground rather than like celebrating the neurosurgeon by not only paying them a huge salary, but also making them feel as if they 
are entitled to more concern about their needs than the average human, maybe what you should do is just have society celebrate how grateful they are for this person and their skills and how grateful that person should feel that that's how things turned out. Wow. I can save somebody's life by doing that or in the same way as, wow, because the stuff in my motor cortex and the socioeconomic privileges of my childhood and a whole bunch of other things thrown together, I can sit down at the piano right now and watch my hands do something on the keys that bring people to tears. How lucky is that, that I wound up being able to do that, that that's how it yeah, turned out? Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind me bringing up a more a more personal topic, you talk in the book, I, I think it's in a footnote, about your struggles with depression over the years. I think at one point you refer to depression as the pathological failure of the ability to rationalize away reality. Do you think that your struggles with depression may have in some ways qualified you to be able to to look directly at aspects of reality that are hard for people to look at? Yeah, I think absolutely. And the reason why I bring that up and I think the final chapter is like, oh, this is totally irritating that I've written this book where basically I'm saying all of these like very smart philosophers are wrong and I'm right. Like, okay, I sound like a total jerk. And then I sound like a different version of a total jerk saying, and all sorts of people can't face the truth. You can't handle the truth. Whatever it is, Jack Nicholson said that there's no free will. And instead you, you bury yourself in these myths of agency and all of that. And wow, I'm one of the ones who's able to face reality and say, and like, oh God, that's like totally self-congratulatory and crap. And so why am I able to do this? Um, Because like I've got an intensely depressive mindset. And no matter how wonderful things are around me in my head, I can somehow ruin it. And often if I'm really getting up to speed, ruin it for my loved ones who are stuck around me for that. And like you view the world that way and oh my God, it turns out that we may not be responsible for our great IQs and our CEO salaries, like, oh, that's so demoralizing. That's going to bum you out. That's nothing compared to like this sort of ruminations that that just echo nonstop and in somebody whose depression is not controlled. Like, yeah, I think that's kind of why I've not only been able to like say, yeah, this is really depressing, um, but here's how the world works. Here's how the world works. And then to somehow at the other end come up with, and you know what? If everyone started agreeing with this, in fact, this would be a good thing. It's liberating. It would be mm. a better world. You know, there, of course, is the argument of of, uh, of neurodiversity of these different brain types that we have and different personality types as, as maybe conferring advantages and being selected for over time. Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting, this idea of depression as something that that causes one to look more uh, objectively at reality. I almost was thinking of like the glasses people wear to look at the at, at the eclipse, you know, uh, because otherwise yeah. your your eyes are damaged. That looking at the irrelevance of humans in a dark, cold, uncaring universe <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> is is something that most 
most people can't look into that abyss. Yeah. And, you know, self-deception can be a very, very helpful thing until, until it turns out it was misplaced. I mean, there's, there's a general view, like in the realm of psychological approaches to major depression, far and away the most effective, the greatest is cognitive behavioral therapy. And what that hones in on is people with depression come up with terrible cognitive distortions about themselves and their present and future. And it's always based or it's typically based on, yeah, something awful happened to you back when. Yes, you failed at that. Yes, you were abandoned. Yes, you were unloved. But that doesn't mean you will always fail. Mm. You will always be abandoned. And you were cognitively distorting what was the past into an inevitable world of your entire future and trying to deconstruct it. And that's great. So depression is about cognitive distortion. But then you get people with major depression and you give them circumstances where not about them and are they going to find love and are they going to this or that, but you just ask them, here's a circumstance where somebody has this background and they've been training to do this and they're applying for this job, they're competing for that. And what do you think the likely outcome is? Or here's somebody who have just understanding likelihoods of certain outcomes of things in the world. And people with major depression make much more accurate assessments than people without depression. Mm -hmm. People who are undepressed are pathologically over-optimistic. And people with depression have this capacity to say, no, actually, they're not going to be able to, this is not (laughs) going to solve this for them. And it's given rise to the soundbite in the field of depression um, is a disorder of people being sadder, but wiser. When you're looking at the detached world around you, uh, that makes for a much more accurate assessor of like... (laughs) just how bad things are. But when it comes to yourself, that's where the pathological cognitive distortions come in so that you can't even see the the cracks of sunlight and their daylight that might be grounds for optimism. I wonder if most neuroscientists and and physicists and so on have, have a confirmation bias in favor of protecting free will, but if you might if you might have a confirmation bias in favor of there not being any free will. Is that possible? That's quite possible. And it's quite possible. And in part because I have this basic ruminative nature. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's, you know, thanks to my privilege of being able to like spend time in some of the less privileged corners of the planet. I'm a little bit more attuned to that stuff. Who knows what? My parents made me guilty in just the right way. Um, yeah, there's distortions there as well. I'm made of the same self-deluding stuff as anyone else. And once again, it's, you know, the vast majority of the time, I can't function as if none of us are entitled to any. If somebody cuts me off in traffic, I'm pissed off at them and think they're a shitty human. And if someone says to me, wow, nice shirt you're wearing today for at least a couple of seconds, I think I'm a better than average human because of that. (laughs) And then, you know, I hopefully come back to my senses or I do it in circumstances where it really matters.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Well, there, there is a lot of beauty, I think, in this kind of journey into understanding humans and physics and the human brain. And, and, and I think for those of us, for those listeners who've taken the full journey here and maybe at least seriously considering the possibility that, that free will is an illusion, I think it may be worth talking about why this need not be depressing. My feeling is that human consciousness is this just miraculous, improbable, exquisitely beautiful thing. I mean, th this experience we have is fully authentic and real, right? It's not an illusion, our, our, our experience of being conscious. And it's, 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 it's a privilege to, to uh, like the sense of rapture we have with life and the privilege of being here. Yep. That's, that's, not, that's not touched by any of this. Would you agree? No. And, you know, a soundbite that I have flogged endlessly for years and years, you know, the purpose of science is not to cure us of like wonder. Its purpose is to reinvigorate it and reinvent yeah, it yeah. all the time. And that's, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. You know, people talk about existential despair, but it, it struck me that existential joy is just as sensible, right? <laughs> it's yes. Like we are, we are yes. here and it's extraordinary and it's a privilege and it's not to be taken for granted that we're here, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's not incompatible with the fact that you're still made of cells and all of that. It's just, it's simply on a different level and it reflects the fact that like every other organism on earth, we're just biological machines. But unlike every organism on Earth, we're the ones who can sense that we're just biological machines and have to kind of yeah. deal with that and figure out where, where do we find meaning with that. And, you know, it seems like no matter how little sense it makes that like a machine can be pained, um, it's a good yeah. thing when we biological machines experience less pain. Yes, and it's yes. a good thing when the world like moves in a direction where that's the case and it's a good thing to have as anyone's personal goal for how they interact with the world around them. So yeah, it's this we not only do we know we're gonna die, but we know we've got like serotonin receptor genes and yeah, we we know there's mechanisms underneath the surface and that could be unsettling as hell. Or it could just be amazing at like how cool the machinery is and how good it is when machines that cannot possibly feel pain and sadness, nonetheless, you do something so they feel less pain and sadness. Mm. 
And empathy, it seems to me that empathy survives the absence of free will. You know, here we are, uh, Martin Luther King's birthday yesterday, who said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It seems to me that you see our scientific journey towards truth, towards fully understanding the human condition as part of that arc bending towards justice. Yeah. You do science the wrong way and you're like patenting napalm and you're helping like evil corporate whatevers or you're, you know, there's all sorts of ways science can go wrong. But at its core, um, when it's done right, science is another branch of like seeking social justice. There's no way you can view the science of how things work out badly for people who had nothing to do with it and not feel that science is potentially, when done right, a pathway for social good. Absolutely. Well, Robert, I'm going to relish your concession that there might be, we, we <laughs> might have free will. I'm going to blow on those little embers while applying all the lessons that we can learn from the, the, the certainty that we have much less free will than we think. Uh, and just a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me on. This was interesting and stimulating. This was great. Thanks. My guess is there are a number of things in this conversation that you probably disagree with. I'd love to hear what they are and discuss it with you. Look me up on LinkedIn. Just search for Rufus Griscom where you'll see my post about this conversation and discussion in the comments below. There've actually been a flurry of books about free will published in the last few months. And if you download our app, you can listen to audio summaries of all of them. Go to your app store, download the next big idea. And in no time, you can listen to Alfred Mele summarizing his book, Free Will, An Opinionated Guide, or Eric Hoel sharing the key insights from The World Behind the World, consciousness, free will, and the limits of science. Become a Next Big Idea Club member today and use the code podcast for 20% off. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. Even if the choice was predetermined, we're glad we feel like we made the choice to partner with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.